Today's scripture reading will be in Ephesians 4, starting with verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can come and worship together today. I pray that the Holy Spirit will speak through Steve today and that our hearts will be receptive to your word. I pray that we walk in these truths that we've just read about so that we can imitate you to bring glory to your name. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Great. Open your scriptures to Ephesians chapter 1 because we're going to do a a quick overview. We're back into our Ephesians season. We we returned to it two weeks ago, uh, but because of the holiday schedule and last week's uh, communion service, uh, we ended up taking a break. And now we're going to hopefully be back into it, I think, until we finish the book. While you're turning there, on behalf of Highland staff, which is Heather, Sean, and myself, uh, we want to thank you for your generous Christmas bonus that was gifted to us. It is never expected, but always a blessing. And so we want to thank you. Uh, Your kindness and care are noticed, and it matters. So thank you. Uh, We put that in the Week at a Glance email, but because we see how many people actually open up the Week at a Glance, Uh, We wanted to make sure we we hit it again here Um, this morning. And we're eventually going to get into chapter four and finish chapter four. uh, We're going to be talking about this theme, and that is walk worthy of your calling. Walk worthy of your calling. Uh, Let's review where we've been. Uh, If you look at chapter one, verses one and two, you're going to see that Paul begins. It's a letter. An epistle is a letter. And because it's a letter, he addresses and greets the recipients. No sooner does Paul greet the believers and he immediately begins to scale up the heights of this theological mountain called Ephesians. Now, if you've ever lived at low elevation like I did in Coral Springs, Florida, 13 feet above sea level, my first trip to the Rockies and then to the Himalayas was staggering. Okay, that's when you're reading scripture, there are certain books And we talked about this in the very first sermon all the way back last year in September. When you start getting into like Ephesians chapter one, two and three, uh, Revelation, uh, Revelation, you might as well just say, you know, one to twenty two Romans one all the way to eleven. I mean, these are treacherous peaks. If I were to take and classify the New Testament books as mountain peaks, and, and, and this is just by way of overview First of all, I would put the Gospel of John as this mountain, K2. By the way, these are all all in the same range. The four tallest mountains in the Himalayas 
are the four tallest mountains in the world. Okay, so this is kind of like scripture. They're the highest, but these are going to be those peaks that stand out even when you're in Nepal or China or India or Pakistan. John's account of the, the, the gospel to me is the second highest peak in scripture. It structures truth around seven signs or miracles. Eight, if you include Jesus' own resurrection. And all those signs are guiding you to a person. Matter of fact, John's going to say this in John chapter 20. He's going to say, these are written, these signs are written so that you may believe something. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the Son of God. So, so John's gospel just juts out on this sort of scriptural Himalayan range. Romans is perhaps the third highest peak, in my opinion. Kangchenjunja. It is in Nepal, and India sits at 28,169 feet and is the third highest peak in the world. Romans, though I wouldn't rank it as the tallest, has probably some of the most treacherous and sheer cliffs as it explains to you justification that you are legally declared righteous. As righteous as Jesus Christ by the Father, the judge, because of God's grace alone. By grace through faith alone. People have fallen off the sheer cliffs of Romans 1 to chapter 11. Probably the tallest, and, and you may know this because we preached through this in the last several years, is Revelation. We all are familiar with Mount Everest, even if we haven't heard of the previous two peaks. Revelation to me is the Everest of the New Testament. Many exegetical casualties exist along the paths to Everest. People that have spiritualized, people that have over and hyper timelined this, people that have used that book to create fear rather than hope. And remember in chapters 2 and 3, Paul is writing to seven different, or John is writing to seven different real churches. And in those letters to the churches, He's correcting them, but he's also encouraging them and giving them hope. It transports us from from chapter four and beyond. I mean, four and five take us into the throne room of God. And then from six to twenty two, it takes us beyond anything that we have ever known before. So where does that place Ephesians? I would say in the same majestic range. Uh, but so we would call it the fourth highest peak, and that is Lotse. It straddles Nepal and China and sits at 27,940 feet. We have been studying the trails of Ephesians, the language and the customs of Ephesians. We've been navigating it, taking our bearings back. What does this mean? This is what we've seen. If we go back and we check our path, or as Ephesians would use the main verb, our walk, as we go back and check our path, here's where we've been. We have tre trekked up the theological salvation peak on a personal level. Because salvation is personal. It affects individuals. God saves peoples. He doesn't just blanket save families or civilizations. He saves people, individuals. You'll see this and you can track with the verse references. 
that we personally are blessed with every spiritual blessing. We are chosen by God. We are predestined to the adoption of sons. We are blessed. We are redeemed and forgiven. Verse 9, we know the mystery of His will. We have obtained an inheritance. We are sealed by His Spirit. We were dead but have been raised to sit with Christ. That's individual. But then that pans out as you start to climb up the elevations. You can start to see a little farther than just your own world, how it touches you personally. And sadly, some believers, some Christians never get out of their me-centered Christianity. It's almost like they have blinders on and okay, I'm safe. I'm going to heaven and that's it for them. That's their whole story. But if you climb the heights of Ephesians, you're going to see second from this peak You look out across the world and you see the global implications of salvation. It's broad and it's inclusive of all humanity. We'll see this in chapter 2, 11 to 13. Gentiles, so non-Jews, typically referred to synonymously as unbelievers or pagans. Gentiles who were once far off from God and strangers to the promises are brought back to God. That wall separating Jew and Gentile, that wall of hostility was removed. In Christ, God has created one new body, the church. Gentiles are now fellow heirs. And I, don't, don't miss this just as we're, as we're skipping through this. Don't miss the difficulty that even godly men, godly Jewish leaders like Peter and James had with this. That God was bringing them together as one new humanity. Now they're fellow heirs with the Jews of the same body and partakers of God's promises in Christ by the gospel. Now there is one whole family in heaven and on earth. And then finally, once you get to the once you summit the peak, you're at the highest elevation. You look out and you see the universal implications. And what what I don't mean by this is universal salvation, that everybody in the end ultimately is going to be safe or saved. That's not what we mean by universal. But what we mean is that God's plan that happened in eternity past has universal implications for eternity future. The ultimate aim of God's work in Christ is not merely personal or global, but universal. So if if you would say this, if you if you if you did summit theologically the Everest of the New Testament, you would have to look up with sort of a Hubble telescope view into the galaxies to understand fully what Paul is explaining. In Revelation, in Romans, in John, and in Ephesians. Here's the universal view. Chapter 1, verse 3. He unveils our spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. That's universal. You've never been there. You've never lived in those heavenly places like you will one day, hopefully. He says this in chapter 1, verse 4. He says, God has been at work for us before the foundation of the world. Do you know what that means? That what happened in the Garden of Eden was not a mistake on God's part. He didn't have to react to that. His plan all along from before the foundations of the world was that the Lamb would be slain for the sins of humanity. Chapter 1, verse 20 to 21, it says this, In the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, not only in globally this perspective, but universally also in the one 
to come. Chapter 2, verse 6, he calls it heavenly places. Chapter 2, verse 7, in the coming ages. In chapter 3, verse 10, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In chapter 3, verse 21, throughout all generations, how long? Forever and ever. The ultimate aim of God's work in Christ is not merely personal or global, but universal. And that's going to help us live together here. If you would, gather together in this living room. It's going to help us talk about difficult issues because we understand it's not just about me and my comfort level and I'm safe and I'm even now safe for eternity. No, it's about everybody else in this room. And it's also about everybody else in this city. And it's also about everybody else in this state and country and world And in the ages to come. So your life should actually have a ripple effect for eternity in people that will outlive you. And if the Lord tarries, will be born long after you die. Is that how you're living? Is that our mindset? Because that's that's the mindset of Ephesians. It's important for us to remember our guiding theme. This, This helps unify everything. Ephesians is all about what God the Father is doing in the church through Christ, for His own glory, forever. I just want you to look at those words real quick. Typically, Christians have a very high view of what words in that sentence, in that theme. God the Father, high view. Christ, high view. For His own glory, high view. Forever, high view. We typically, though, have a very low view of what? The church. And part of that's our responsibility for how we've lived as the church, for how we've ministered as the church, for how we failed to love as the church, for how we failed to be salt and light as the church. But do you know this is God's plan? It is what God the Father is doing in the church through Christ for His own glory. And that theme is based on two verses in chapter 3. I have them up here on the screen. Verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. It's interesting, in this short letter, which is divided for us into six chapters, there are two lengthy prayers. It's almost like he's, he's trekking and getting up to the high elevations of, if you would, Mount Lotsay, and he has to stop and take in some oxygen. And in a sense, Paul is praying that these truths would become clear And that we could live them out because they're so majestic and high. So these two lengthy prayers. And so Paul says this to him be glory. Or he says this in three, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the father. And then he says in verse 21 to him, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And this is because of what Christ has done. And the question I have for you is what has Jesus done? Well, he saved me. Yes, by grace, through faith in Christ alone, he saves individuals. But what is he doing? What has he done? And this is what he's done. He's done something new. He has taken two groups of people that before there was hostility and difference and distinction, geographically, ethnically, religiously. He's brought them back into one person. It is a unifying work that he is doing for the glory of his son. I was thinking about my own life. I'm very good at creating divisions, distinctions, 
feeding my biases. But are we like God in His mission for the world in unifying? In bringing to, not, not at the compromise of doctrine. We're going to see that. Paul's actually going to address that. But at the point of actually ministering and loving and breaking down walls of hostility that we try to keep putting up that get in the way of what God has done in Christ by creating one new man, one new humanity. Here are two major characteristics of this new humanity. First, it is one people called together and composed of Jews and Gentiles, a single family of God without racial, economical or geographical distinction. Chapter 2, verse 15 in Ephesians, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And a local church ought to resemble that mission. Second, not only is it a single humanity, a, one, a, a, a unified people, but it is a distinct people. We're actually called, like Old Testament Israel, to be distinct and different from the godless agenda of a secular world. It is that distinction that allows us to shine as lights in a world of evil. The practical aspects of our unity and holiness, those are two words that Scripture uses, are understood in Ephesians by the verb to walk. We talked about this because once you get into Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, at least until chapter 5, verse 2, it is this verb that shapes everything. Let me give you that example here again. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. No longer walk as the Gentiles do. Walk how? In love. Walk as children of light. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. What does that verb teach us? Nobody here was born walking. No one. And if you come up to me afterwards and show me some kind of a video that your mom took that when you were two hours old and you walked across, I'm not going to believe it. Because it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. The Son of God was born as a baby and He didn't come out walking. What does walk tell us then? That it's not like blinking. It's not involuntary. But it's a voluntary reaction. It's something that is learned. It is something that is deliberate. It's something that is controlled and directed. Just like when we dismiss here, and some of you already know that one of our, one of our favorite Coffee Connect desserts are apple fritters, unless it's Krispy Kreme, uh, but the apple fritters, and, and your walk will direct you at a certain pace to those tables because you have to get there before who? The kids. Exactly right. And so your walk is going to be determined and with purpose and it's going to be directed and it's going to have a little skip in its beat. And oh, I can say hi to that new guest later. I need my apple fritter. And there's room, right? We give grace for that here. Um, but it's a directed, learned, voluntary action. It's going to be important. Because, folks, just because you're a Christian and just because you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you does not mean today that you will walk in holiness does not mean that you will walk in love. And it does not mean you will walk distinctly. And so that's why Paul is going to come through and sort of give these, these not necessarily commands, 
but these reminders of, of who you are in Jesus Christ. So look at chapter 4, verse 1. We've been here. This is where our overview is going to get a little more detailed. And if possible, we're going to pick up speed here. But look at chapter 4, verse 1 with me. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. We remember Paul wrote four letters from prison. This is one of them. He's not despondent. He's not depressed. He's not in in a mode of self-pity. He's simply saying, this has happened to me because of the gospel. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And when he when he says, so what does a worthy walk look like? We talked about this. There are three attitudes that he gives for a worthy walk with all humility and gentleness with patience. As we gather, as we share life, as we live in this community, as some of you go to to the unreached peoples of the world, what does a worthy walk look like? What does you deliberately walking because God has called you to be his own child? What does a worthy walk look like? Humility. Thinking of ourselves and our personal rights less. Without humility, there can be no unity. Gentleness, strength under control. Not harshness, not brutishness, patience, suffering long with the faults of others, enduring annoyances and irritations over a long period of time. These three attitudes are not just attributes in a vacuum, but are played out in real time. You'll see that in verse two. Look at Ephesians four, verse two. These are attitudes in action, bearing with one another in love. That means putting up with each other. Here in the church, you know what our tendency is? If we don't like something or we don't get our way, and if you've forgotten how, what we do as, as humans, just, just look out at a playground once when other people's kids are playing or your own kids are playing. And that toy in the corner that had no interest by either of them, one of them grabs it, now what? Yes, the other one wants it. And there is this colossal fight. Our tendency is when we don't get what we like, when we don't get what we prefer, when things are irritating, we run. It's actually a very selfish, prideful response. It's self-protection. We run. We don't, just don't want to deal with it. It's a defense mechanism. You know what God's people do? They put up with each other. And they don't just put up with each other like, yeah, you've been around him. Hmm. No, we put up with each other. We bear with one another. What's the word? There's a qualifying clause in love. That's how we do it. And when the world sees that, that's different than what they experience. And we are also look at verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Unity based on the gospel, but it must be maintained rather than assumed. Okay, what is that unity based on? We've got these attitudes, these attitudes in action. Now, what is that unity based on? Paul lists seven things that express the uniqueness of the gospel. Doctrine around which our unity is to be based. Look at these seven doctrinal non-negotiables. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You know what Paul's doing by talking about these attitudes and these attitudes in action and then following it up with these seven doctrines? 
He's pushing against our natural inclination to be proud rather than humble, to be gruff and demanding rather than gentle. He's pushing against our natural inclination to find unity over everything else, personality, politics, economic class. And he's pushing against that natural sinful tendency because if our unity is based on anything but this, if our unity is based on skin color or affluence or education, we have just created sectarian, sinful, selfish, sectarian groups within the body of Christ. When we are supposed to be a new humanity reflected with humility and gentleness, putting up with each other in love based around these core doctrines. That unity is important to understand because because of this, God has given us a grace to be used here. Not grace in the sense that we have been saved by grace. That's true. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 talk about that. But a grace as a gift that when, when, when you trusted Jesus Christ, you were saved by grace alone. But he also graced you, we could say it that way. But that grace was not for your own advancement, for your own success. It was actually to serve one another in this kind of new humanity. Verse, verse 7 of chapter 4, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let me ask you this. Is the grace that Christ gave you a grace to other people here? Is it a grace to people in this community? The gift that God has given to you, is it being used as a grace to other people? And this, this, here, here's where this gets uncomfortable because that is going to push against our attend a service on Sunday morning mindset and it's going to kind of pressure us to adopt a serving others mindset when we're gathered and when we're scattered. It's a big difference. Therefore, it says... When he ascended on high, that's Jesus, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men in saying he ascended. Don't get lost here. because this, this is beautiful theology. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions? The earth, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. When he says, therefore, it says he's actually quoting a psalm a messianic psalm, and the original first century readers would have understood that in the context of the Exodus. Now, when, when Jesus, I love Luke's account of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, two Old Testament visitors are next to him. Who are they? Elijah and Moses, right? The representative of the law, the representative of the prophets, and it says, I love how Luke records this, they were discussing with Jesus about his departure. That word departure is exodus. The, the, the picture here is that Jesus is creating a new exodus by the sacrifice of himself, by the Passover lamb. A new exodus where he will deliver people. And look at what happens. He descended. That's his birth. He went out. That's his death. He quotes Psalm 66, 18 to reinforce this. 
Then he went up the resurrection and the ascension where he now reigns. And as he goes up, he even told his disciples this. It is better for you that what? What did he say? It's better for you that I go away. For if I don't go away, I won't be able to send another one, a comforter to help you. And with that Holy Spirit, with his spirit, he gifts us to grace others in this new humanity. Why are gifts given? Gifts are given to serve and to build. Look at verses 11 to 16. We're not going to read them. But he has gifted the church to be a blessing to others. So here's here's the big idea of those verses. To be like Jesus Christ is to build others up and to serve others and to equip with truth. To be like the world is to exploit and take and tear down. So are we walking as the Gentiles do or if you go to that bookend verse, are we looking like imitators of God? Paul moves to a warning. Look at verse 17. When Paul teaches about this new walk, he actually begins with a negative. He's going to say this. Stop walking like this. Why? Because we're we're a new creation and together we are a new man, a new humanity. Why does Paul say this? Why does he say don't walk any longer like the Gentiles? Why does he say that? And this is going to sound funny and reversed in a timeline, but Paul knows what we know. Paul knows that changing lifelong patterns of thought, belief, attitude, and action can be extremely difficult. Paul knows that when we're tired and we're not accessing the Spirit's influence in our life as we should through the Word of God and through prayer and through fellowship, that we begin to default back to the old man, which has been crucified, by the way. Stop walking like this. I want you to see these bookend verses because that will help us understand the thought. Chapter 417 and 51, Paul says this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And he bookends that thought in 5 verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. So if you look at this entire section, here's what he's saying. Stop imitating the godless world and start imitating God. That's the big idea of this entire section. I was telling Chase this morning because we were talking about our mutual fear of public speaking. And I was called to preach, so I went and took an undergrad in Bible because I knew nothing, really nothing about the Bible. And I, I remember with fear and trepidation going in and changing my minor during my undergrad to a composite speech. Because I knew I had to get through the fear of public speaking. I had no idea what I... To, to, that, to this day, I don't know why I would have done that. But I still remember I had some very gracious instructors and teachers that helped me through the fear of public speaking. Uh, but one was sort of an entry-level acting class. And our, our female speech teacher taught us guys how to walk like a lady. It is possible, but very awkward. And there's a certain way, you know, you put your heel down and we looked ridiculous. Um, but but the point is, uh, thinking back on that time, it is very difficult to walk. Differently than you're used to. Just because we are born again at age 21. Doesn't mean I'm not tempted to walk like I used to. There's a new walk. So this is what Paul is urging us. Walk. By the assistance of God's Spirit, walk differently. Don't keep walking. You don't have to walk that way anymore. Walk like this. 
And Paul points out, and, and Sean addressed this two weeks ago, Paul points out that the problem is the mind. And this is where renewal comes from. Renewal doesn't come from a new job or a spouse or any of those other things that we might have on our, oh, I hope so one day. It comes in the mind. Several expressions convey this thought. Look at verse, verse 17 is up on the screen. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. How do they walk? In the futility of their what? Of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. The danger is, and some of you have heard this illustration before, that at salvation, God unlocked, right? His rescuer, redeemer's son came and unlocked the prison cell door and did away with all the guards and you were free. There are times in our life and some of us not too long ago where we wandered back to that old prison and walked through its doors even though there were no guards and we walked back into our cell and we curled up in the corner in the darkness and the stench of the prison. But you don't have to be there. Don't walk like that any longer. And when you come to your senses, you realize, oh, the door is still open and there's no one guarding it. And I don't have to be here. This is what Paul is saying. Matter of fact, he's going to say, remember something then. Paul speaks of learning. Remember what you learned. Hearing Christ, being taught by Christ. That's classroom vocabulary. Remember what you were instructed about. By the way, and, and by the way, what we learned, what, hopefully, we're not just things about Jesus Christ. We actually learned him personally. He says this in verse 20, chapter 4. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Well, what, what did we learn about Christ? Look at verse 22. Perhaps the most familiar section in Ephesians to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Here's the foundation. This isn't just a try harder section. It is you died with Jesus Christ. You are in union with him and you have been given new life, new birth. You've been renewed in your minds. And you have put on new clothes. You have put on the righteousness of Christ. So for you to walk like you're still dead is not walking in alignment with your position. So your practice has to start mirroring your identity in Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, 9 to 11 speaks of this. Romans 13, 14 speaks of this. And what I, but I, what I want to point out in this section, since this, this was already preached on, is that the only time in this entire letter that Christ is called Jesus is right here. And there's a difference in those, in those names. In verse 21, I want you to look at it. Okay, up to this point, Paul has been emphasizing Jesus' transcendence. That means he's above and beyond anything you could imagine. His enthronement above all spiritual powers but here he is saying that the Son of God, Christ, has taught us something by becoming a human. As his disciples said in John 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen something. In him doing that, we have learned something. We have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Not just truth about Jesus, but his example. 
The picture here is often of taking off old, soiled clothing. I remember one day, while we were on deputation to go to Africa, uh, a man let us stay in a single wide trailer uh, with, our, with our young children for free if I did some work around the farm. And one of the day, I mean, I got to drive the putt-putt, the farm all and the John Deere putt-putt, but on this particular hot summer day in South Carolina, I got to shovel a lot of manure. And I went out and shoveled, and at first you're like, this reeks. And then an hour into it, you don't smell anything anymore. Two hours into it, you don't even care where it's splattering, except your mouth, you don't care. And, and you go in, you, don't even, you really don't even smell yourself anymore. And the blue jeans are now brown jeans. And, and you go in, and I'll tell you what I did not do, though. I didn't go in and say, hey, guys, let's go just jump in the car and go, let's go out to dinner at P.F. Chang's. And not do anything about the clothes. You basically, you throw those clothes away. You go in and you scrub because the reek has gotten onto your skin. And you wash and you cleanse and you put on new clothes. And then you go out to dinner. Do you know that Jesus Christ has already done the washing of you? He's already washed your heart. He's washed your mind. The picture here is of taking off those soiled clothes and putting on the new clothes. But here's what some people do. Even though they've been given new clothing, they go dig through the trash can and they find the old soiled cow manure jeans and they start putting them back on again. And that is in total opposition to who you are in Jesus Christ. He's going to run through several applications. Let me read 2 Peter 3, 17 to 18. He says this. Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. He's talking to believers. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and knowledge. Grace and truth. We beheld His glory. He was full of what? Grace and truth. You've not learned Jesus that way. Remember what you've learned. Here are the applications. Give me four minutes to run to a conclusion. So, with, with that truth, these, this is not exhaustive. These are just typical applications we need as a church. There are other applications we need personally, but these are the ones that show up when we gather together in this new humanity, when we live life as a new humanity. Don't lie, but rather be truthful. Okay. No more exaggeration or spinning the story. No more gossiping or slander. Why? Note the close relationships. You are neighbors and you are members of each other. Is your life characterized by truth, accuracy, integrity, and trustworthiness? Secondly, be angry. Be angry. We need to be more like the psalmist who said in Psalm 119, verse 53, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. E.K. Simpson said this. I want you to hear this. Don't, don't, don't lose. The truest peacemaker may have to assume the role of peace breaker as a sacred obligation. If you do not get angry at sexual assault, there is a problem in your heart. If you do not get angry at the, at the, the, the broad-scale killing of the living unborn, there is a problem in your heart. If you never get angry at wickedness, you have a spiritual problem. Be angry. 
But Paul immediately qualifies our permission to be angry with three negatives. Be angry, but what? Do not sin. Your anger should be free from revenge, free from injured pride, free from selfish irritation. Second, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And that doesn't mean move to Greenland where a day can be several months. That means set time parameters because even righteous anger can spoil and mold and become foul. And give no opportunity to the devil. Do you know that righteous anger that spoils into unrighteous anger becomes an outpost for Satan? He actually has a place now in your mind and your heart to do his work. And when people here may initially be righteously angry or unrighteously angry and they hold on to it, it creates an outpost for Satan right here within the new humanity. So, folks, be angry at the right thing. I would love to see some more anger here, but don't sin. Don't give the devil an opportunity and put time constraints on it. In verse 28, he says this, don't steal, but rather work and give. I don't know what shape that takes in our life. Build hours that aren't accurate, falsely claiming expenses that don't exist or avoiding taxes. But it moves beyond prohibition to this. This is what we need to get. Work honestly and diligently so that you can give to others. Paul moves from the use of our hands to the use of our mouth. Look at verse 29. Don't use corrupt speech, but use words that build up. Let no corrupting talk. That's rotten fruit. Vulgar jokes, harsh criticism, hurtful sarcasm, painful and damaging criticism. Stop that. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace. See, you learned that through Christ. He's full of grace and truth. So speak so that it gives grace to those who hear. Look at verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That means to make him exceedingly sorrowful. The Spirit is helping you renew your mind. Helping you live in accordance with your calling. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God to conform you to the image of the Son of God. You are sealed with Him for the day of redemption. And then look at verses 31 to 32. Don't be unkind or bitter, but kind, loving, and forgiving. And why? Here's the new motivation here. Here is why we do not have to live in the prison of resentment or why we don't have to be in hateful comparison of body image or why we don't need to become sour just because people have hurt us. Here's why two new motivations. This is where we end. Do these things because verse 32, God in Christ forgave you. Did you deserve it? There'll be times that people here do not deserve your forgiveness. You're not doing it because they deserve it. You're doing it because God in Christ forgave you. In second verses five, one to two, this is where we'll close. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. What's the motivation? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Are your words, are your actions, are the use is the use of your grace to others here a sweet smelling fragrance? To this church. Here's what we need to ask, and then I'll pray. In view of God's amazing grace to me in Christ, how can I be holy and serve God and others with my life?